Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far. Read to you by Pratham Data. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Read to you by Pratham Data. Chapter 17. England under Edward II. Last time we finished off with the Battle of Bannockburn, the first of the Scottish Wars of Independence, in 1314, where a decisive victory under Robert the Bruce really capitulated Edward II of England. About five to eight thousand Scottish forces fought against twenty to twenty five thousand English forces and they won the day. This is what follows. Plague and famine succeeded in England, and still the powerless king and his disdainful lords were always in contention. Some of the turbulent chiefs of Ireland made proposals to Bruce to accept the rule of that country. He sent his brother Edward to them, who was crowned King of Ireland. He afterwards went himself to help his brother in his Irish wars. But his brother was defeated in the end and killed. Robert Bruce, returning to Scotland, still increased his strength there. As the king's ruin had begun in a favourite, so it seemed likely to end in one. He was too poor a creature to rely at all upon himself, and his new favourite was one Hugh de Despenser, the son of a gentleman of ancient family. Hugh was handsome and brave, but he was the favourite of a weak king, whom no man cared a rush for and that was a dangerous place to hold. The nobles leagued against him because the king liked him, and they lay in wait, both for his ruin and his father's. Now, the king had married him to the daughter of the late Earl of Gloucester, and had given both him and his father great possessions in Wales. In their endeavours to extend these, they gave violent offence to an angry Welsh gentleman named John de Mowbray, and to divers other angry Welsh gentlemen who resorted to arms, took their castles and seized their estates. The Earl of Lancaster had first placed the favourite, who was a poor relation of his own, at court, and he considered his own dignity offended by the preference he received and the honours he acquired. So he and the barons who were his friends joined the Welshmen, marched on London and sent a message to the king demanding to have the favourite and his father banished. At first, the king unaccountably took it into his head to be spirited and to send them a bold reply. But when they quartered themselves around Holborn and Clerkenwell, and went down armed to the Parliament at Westminster, he gave way and complied with their demands. His turn of triumph came sooner than he expected. It arose out of an accidental circumstance. 
the beautiful queen, happening to be travelling, came one night to one of the royal castles and demanded to be lodged and entertained there until morning. The governor of this castle, who was one of the enraged lords, was away, and in his absence his wife refused admission to the queen. A scuffle took place among the common men on either side, and some of the royal attendants were killed. The people, who cared nothing for the king, were very angry that their beautiful queen should be thus rudely treated in their own dominions, and the king, taking advantage of this feeling, besieged the castle, took it, and then called the two dispensers home. Upon this, the confederate lords and the Welshmen went over to Bruce. The king encountered them at Boroughbridge, gained the victory, and took a number of distinguished prisoners, among them the Earl of Lancaster, now an old man, upon whose destruction he was resolved. This earl was taken to his old castle at Pontefract, and there tried and found guilty by an unfair coat appointed for the purpose. He was not even allowed to speak in his own defence. He was insulted, pelted, mounted on a stuffed pony without saddle or bridle, carried out and beheaded. Eight and twenty knights were hanged, drawn and quartered. But the king had dispatched the bloody work, and had made a fresh and a long truce with Bruce. He took the dispensers into greater favour than ever, and made the father Earl of Winchester. One prisoner, and an important one, who was taken at Boroughbridge, made his escape, however, and turned the tide against the king. This was Roger Mortimer, always resolutely opposed to him, who was sentenced to death and placed for safe custody in the Tower of London. He treated his guards to a quantity of wine into which he had put a sleeping potion, and when they were insensible, broke out of his dungeon, got into a kitchen, climbed up the chimney, let himself down from the roof of the building with a rope ladder, passed the sentries, got down to the river and made away in a boat to where servants and horses were waiting for him. He finally escaped to France, where Charles Le Bel, the brother of the beautiful queen, was king. Charles sought to quarrel with the king of England on pretense of his not having to come and do homage at his coronation. It was proposed that the beautiful queen should go over to arrange the dispute. She went and wrote home to the king. As he was sick and could not come to France himself, perhaps it would be better to send over the young prince, their son, who was only twelve years old, who could do homage to her brother in his stead, and in whose company she would immediately return. The king sent him, but... Both he and the Queen remained at the French court, and Roger Mortimer became the Queen's lover. When the King wrote again and again to the Queen to come home, she did not reply 
that she despised him too much to live with him anymore, which was the truth, but said that she was afraid of the two dispensers. In short, her design was to overthrow the favourite's power and the king's power, such as it was, and invade England. Having obtained a French force of 2,000 men and being joined by all the English exiles then in France, she landed within a year at Orwell in Suffolk, where she was immediately joined by the earls of Kent and Norfolk, the king's two brothers, by other powerful noblemen, and lastly by the first English general who was dispatched to check her, who went over to her with all his men. The people of London, receiving these tidings, would do nothing for the king, but broke open the tower, let out all his prisoners, and threw up their caps and hurrahed for the beautiful queen. The king, with his two favourites, fled to Bristol, where he left older Spencer in charge of the town and castle, while he went on with the son to Wales. The Bristol men, being opposed to the king, and it being impossible to hold the town with enemies everywhere within the walls, Despenser yielded it up on the third day, and was instantly brought to trial for having traitorously influenced what was called the king's mind. Though I doubt if the king ever had any. He was a venerable old man, upwards of ninety years of age, but his age gained no respect or mercy. He was hanged, torn open while he was yet alive, cut up into pieces and thrown to the dogs. His son was soon taken, tried at Hereford before the same judge on a long series of foolish charges, found guilty and hanged upon a gallows, fifty feet high, with a chaplet of nettles round his head. His poor old father and he were innocent enough of any worse crimes than the crime of being friends of a king, on whom, as a mere man, they would never have deigned to cast a favourable look. It is a bad crime, I know, but leads to worse. But many lords and gentlemen, I even think some ladies too, if I recollect right, have committed it in England, who have neither been given to the dogs nor hanged up fifty feet high. The wretched king was running here and there all this time and never getting anywhere in particular until he gave himself up and was taken off to Kenilworth Castle. When he was safely lodged there, the Queen went to London and met the Parliament, and the Bishop of Hereford, who was the most skilful of her friends, said, What was to be done now? Here was an imbecile, insolent, miserable king upon the throne. Wouldn't it be better to take him off and put his son there instead? I don't know whether the Queen really pitied him at this pass, but she began to cry, 
So the bishop said, Well, my lords and gentlemen, what do you think upon the whole of sending down to Kenilworth and seeing if his majesty, God bless him and forbid we should dispose him, won't resign? My lords and gentlemen thought it a good motion. So a deputation of them went down to Kenilworth and there the king came into the great hall of the castle, commonly dressed in a poor black gown, and when he saw a certain bishop among them, fell down, a poor, feeble-headed man, and made a wretched spectacle of himself. Somebody lifted him up, and then Sir William Trussell, the Speaker of the House of Commons, almost frightened him to death by making him a tremendous speech to the effect that he was no longer a king and that everybody renounced allegiance to him. After which Sir Thomas Blount, the steward of the household, nearly finished him by coming forward and breaking his white wand, which was a ceremony only performed at a king's death. Being asked in this pressing manner what he thought of resigning, the king said he thought it was the best thing he could do. So he did it, and they proclaimed his son next day. I wish I could close his history by saying that he lived a harmless life in the castle, in the castle gardens at Kenilworth, many years, and that he had a favourite, and plenty to cut and drink, and, having that, wanted nothing. But he was shamefully humiliated. He was outraged and slighted, and had dirty water from ditches given to shave with, and wept and said he would have clean warm water, and was altogether very miserable. He was moved from this castle to that castle, and from that castle to the other castle, because this lord or that lord or the other lord was too kind to him. Until at last he came to Berkeley Castle, near the River Severn, where, the Lord Berkeley being then ill and absent, he fell into the hands of two black ruffians called Thomas Gournay and William Ogle. One night, it was the night of September the 21st, 1327, dreadful screams were heard by the startled people in the neighbouring town, ringing through the thick walls of the castle and the dark, deep night, and they said, as they were thus horribly awakened from their sleep, May heaven be merciful to the king, for those cries forebode that no good is being done to him in his dismal prison. Next morning he was dead, not bruised or stabbed, all marked upon the body, but much distorted in the face, and it was whispered afterwards that those two villains, Gorney and Ogle, had burnt up his inside with a red-hot iron. If you ever come near Gloucester and see the centre tower of its beautiful cathedral with its four rich pinnacles rising lightly in the air, you may remember that the wretched Edward II was buried in the old abbey of that ancient city at 43 years old, after being for 19 years and a half 
a perfectly incapable king. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.